Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, a warning from our old buddy George. Binge Mode contains adult content, much like Game of Thrones, the series adapted from my novels, A Song of Ice and Fire. If you have read the novels or have watched the show, then you're probably okay. Come join us on the Cinnamon Wind. It's time for Binge Mode. But I'm asking you to think about your children now. They'll never have children of their own if we don't band together. The long night is coming, and the dead come with it. No clan can stop them. The free folk can't stop them. The Night's Watch can't stop them. And all the southern kings can't stop them. Only together. All of us. And even then, it may not be enough, but at least we'll give the fuckers a fight. Hello! Yeah. And welcome to Binge Mode. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished raising an army of the dead. Dead of winter, dead of winter. It's Ringer staff writer, your maester, Jason Concepcion. Hello. Jason. Fuck the glass. Sounds painful. We're going to die here. Yeah, maybe. I think we might. (laughs) We might. We are rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. We are deep diving one at a time. Spoiler warning, as always, we will be going deep on details from the show and the books from this episode and this season and beyond. So make your way to the ships as quickly as you can because it's time to break down season five, episode eight, the masterful hard home. Jason? Yeah. We're not here to fight. No. We're here to talk specifically about what actually happened in this eighth episode. So let's offer a quick refresher by taking a brief trip down our own King's Road. In Marine, Tyrion and Jorah appear before Danny. And what about that dragon statement necklace? Mm, Looking great. That's right. Girls in Vanderpump rules would be so pleased. Seen that on Etsy, I think. (laughs) Tyrion makes his pitch to join Danny as an advisor, his first job. What do I do with Jorah? TLDR. Jorah exiled again. Danny and Tyrion drink wine and talk about their daddies. Tyrion tells her that Varys has been secretly supporting her claim for many years. Danny names Tyrion her advisor and makes the famous break the wheel speech. Jorah goes back to Yezan. Hey, dude, I won. So let me fight in the fighting pits in front of the queen. In King's Landing. Tough time for Cersei. She, (laughs) so far at least, is stubbornly refusing to confess her crimes. Great. Kyburn. Kyburn. Sorry for (laughs) Maester. Not a Maester, you guys. Expelled. He manages, (laughs) despite not even being a Maester, to visit Cersei and go over uh, the laundry list of charges that are facing her fornication, guilty, treason, guilty. Incest. Oh, God, is she fucking guilty. And the murder of King Robert. Not guilty, guys. Despite what the show well, leads fuzzy us with to believe. The show's a bit fuzzy with this. but Lancel's, she yeah. like, dropping that shade. Yeah. Fucking Lancel. And 
Pabern has another bit of info. Pabern. Kevin with an A. That's right. Now, hand of with the an king. A. Speaking of the king, though. That's right. Won't eat. Sulkin. Won't come visit. He will not get his food. He leaves it outside the door and just, we just hear video games from inside. I just hope someone's feeding Sir Pounce. Yeah. Cersei continues to threaten Septa Unella. In Bravos, Arya's first work for the Faceless Men begins in earnest while pretending to be Lana, a simple merchant of oysters, clams, and cockles. She identifies a thin, elderly man who takes short positions against sailors of ships. He is to be her first target. In Winterfell, Sansa confronts Reek about why he ratted her out, and he lets slip and then Ooh. reveals that the boys he murdered and burned were not, in fact, Bran and Rickon. This what? is obviously big information yeah. for Sansa to hear. Meanwhile, Roos is preparing for the arrival of Stannis' army. He's ready for siege, but Ramsay suggests something else. A guerrilla-style raid on Stannis' lumbering columns. Just give me 20 men, Pops. Let me do it. Castle Black. Sam and Gilly discuss the attack. Ollie comes to Sam for counsel. Why is John saving the wildlings, he asks, and Sam gives him a reason which Ollie doesn't really give a fuck about. Fucking Ollie. Fucking Ollie. And finally, yeah. at Hardhome, on the shivering sea beyond the wall, Holy shit, what a sequence this is. This, man, just go back in your minds it's a couple amazing. years. This was stunning. It's one of the greatest action scenes in movies or film of the last five years. And Nudos. We will talk a little yeah. bit more later on about how this plays out in the book, but the very quick version is mostly off page. Yep. This was new. This was huge. What was this? Well, John's rescue fleet arrives in Hardhome, and with Tormund's help after some Back and forth, he convinces some, not all, but some of the wildlings to head back to Castle Black with him. But, but before they can pack up the car and head out, the Whites and the White Walkers arrive. John, this is big, manages to kill a White Walker with, drum roll please, <laughs> Logclaw, his Valerian <laughs> steel sword. What a bit of information for John and us to learn. But, Despite that huge one-on-one -on -one victory, the battle quickly devolves into a desperate situation and a desperate retreat to the sea. And as John and the few wildlings who did manage to escape with him look back at the carnage, the Night's King walks out to the dock, raises his arms, and in a moment that launched a thousand memes, That's right. raises the army of the dead. Mal! Jason! <laughs> when John arrives at Hardhome to make his pitch to the Wildlings, he says that these aren't normal times, and he's right. That gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is understanding the stakes. Everything changes when the Night's King raises his arms. For those who witness it firsthand at Hardhome, for those who will learn of it in time, and for us here at home. These stakes begin to crystallize for numerous other characters as well. But we have to start with the events along the Shivering Sea. We have to. We absolutely have to. Because again, it's almost impossible to overstate how massive this is. It's huge. It's huge. So fucking big. 
it's gigantic. like it's like the first time you see Hodor's cock. That's that a big man. That's a big moment. That's a big battle. <laughs> oh, giant's blood around the queen. Game of Thrones, the show, begins with the White Walkers ambushing a Night's Watch ranging party. It's a good thing we're not children. Is it, Waymar Royce? Since that time, the Walker threat, existential though it may have been, has been advancing at a fairly glacial pace. A scene here, you know, Fist of the First Men, off-screen battle there, a white or two scampering around in the fucking woods. The stage has been dominated for the most part, by the political maneuvering of two of the realm's greatest families, the Starks and the Lannisters, and the various wars of succession aimed at acquiring the Iron Throne involving Stannis and Balon, sort of, and uh, Renly, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Knights of Summer. Knights of Summer. Shouts to them. After Hardhome, though, John will attempt to tell his brothers and anyone who might listen those are petty squabbles, you guys. The Night's came is coming. An army the size of, like, honestly, who knows? How big is this fucking army? Like, let's think about this. Uh, how many people have died north of the Wall in the last 6,000 years who the Night's King might potentially uh, have as part of his armies? The Night's King's army... Hundreds of thousands strong? Is it more? Is it millions strong? Oh, God. Honestly, who knows? I'm Sir extremely glad that John burned Egret. <laughs> who knows? And when and if they happen to get past the wall, that, you know, that'll just be a feedback loop of dead feeding the army of the dead. John understood before Hardhome that the realm, battered by civil war, wasn't ready to meet the threat in any kind of way. The North, in particular, took a heavy, heavy brunt. Most of its fighting men left several years prior to go fight in Rob's war. And now... Who's left? Probably young men and, you know, whoever stayed behind. But knowing something in the abstract, you know, after throwing a lantern at a couple of whites who are just shambling around at Castle Black, it is not the same as seeing the Night's King raise tens of thousands of recently killed wildlings with a gesture. This is what he's facing now and gazing upon it. He must be thinking, how do we even fight this? And for the wildlings, those who escaped the stakes have been apparent for a long time, and now the rest of the realm is beginning to understand it. Remember when Tormund says on the docks to John, as John is like, ah, I can't, you know, should be more. I should be saving more right now. Tormund says, you know how long it took months to burn them together? 20 fucking years. <laughs> and what does this suggest to us? This suggests that the wildlings have known, have felt the cold winds rising for a long ass time since... Maybe the days of Robert's Rebellion, 20 years? Like, when would Mansa's pitch have been amenable to these people? Certainly they would have to have known that this was true for Mance not to just get cut up by whoever he's trying to, to say this to. So that suggests, wow, this has been going on a while. And then crucially, Hard Home sets the stakes for us, for the audience. Now's the time that you realize, oh shit, this is what it's about. It's about this. One of the things that is so cool but also so jarring yeah. and daunting about this scene is yeah. that the stakes are extremely, extremely, extremely high before the attack. Yeah. Before the Night's King raises his arms. Like, why are they there in the first place? John's initial appeal to them, to this gathering of 
Chieftains. Chieftains? Sure. And chieftainesses? Shouts to the Lord of Bones. <laughs> yeah, he did not. Man, <laughs> boy, he went down fast. He's a lot, let me just say that he's a lot more vigorous in the books than he is in the show. <laughs> he went down. Yeah. Oh, quick one. Quick one. <laughs> But John is making his appeal again before the actual battle begins. And he says, my name's Jon Snow. I'm Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. We're not friends. Yeah. We've never been friends. We won't become friends today. This isn't about friendship. This is about survival. This is about putting a 700-foot wall between you and what's out there. He goes on. He's continuing to state his case because, you know, unsurprisingly, he's meeting with some resistance, breaking through a little bit with Mm -hmm. with a couple people. But there's, you know, the thins. Yeah. Everybody hates them. Famously stubborn. Yeah. And John goes on. These aren't normal times. The white walkers don't care if a man's free folk or crow. We're all the same to them. Meet for their army. But together we can beat them. Meet for their army. Yeah. That is the stake. And again, that's before they see how big that army is, how much meat there really yeah. is already. But in the course of this particular exchange, John reveals the satchel of dragon glass that he has. He shares this information about how Sam learned after digging it up and killing a walker that it has walker killing properties. They discuss this. He's sharing information. That's how high the stakes are that before even securing their alliance, He's sharing valuable intel with people who are, in theory, in that moment, still an enemy. Yeah. That's really clarifying for us as viewers and probably for them, too. Oh, he's willing to tell us this? Right. Shit must be really bad. But, of course, as you note, they already know how bad shit is. This is just about all of them sort of getting onto the same page and realizing that they're speaking a common language, facing a common threat. You know, John reminds everybody he's speaking to that Mance didn't actually want a war with the Night's Watch. He wanted safety, safe harbor for his people. And that is what John is prepared to offer. And there's an interesting moment with Carsey, a uh, a woman filling the the sort of archetypal role of person who's introduced to make a big speech, say something emotional to her kids and then die. And she basically makes a speech that's like the mirror image of the speech the brothers in the Night's Watch gave to John. She says, I lost my father, my uncle, and two brothers fighting the damn crows. That's akin to John's brother saying, I lost Gren and Pip and X, Y, and Z fighting the wildlings. They're actually all weighing the same variables and factors just from the opposite perspectives. And John says, I'm not asking you to forget you're dead. This is, again, echoes of the same thing he's been saying to the people on the other side of this debate. I'll never forget mine. I lost 50 brothers the night that Mance attacked the wall. But I'm asking you to think about your children now. That's what this is about. Survival. Your, your, Your family, your life, your children's life. The long night is coming and the dead come with it. Only together, all of us. And even then, it may not be enough. Let's just fast forward a a minute here. This is the same appeal that John is still making seasons later, still attempting to unite and rally the realm around this idea. It's no accident that the teaser trailer that was initially released for season seven is shots of John, shots of Danny, shots of Cersei, rulers on their thrones. And then what's the hammer shot at the end? It's the Night's King. This is still the calculus. Does your petty human squabble matter? Or is it about the Great War? Who can see that? The people who are able to grasp those stakes are the ones who are going to survive. Thank God for Longclaw, though. Thank That's God. big. And, you know, this war is even more diabolical than that, because think of the moment when Carsey, who's just put her kids on a boat and been like, I'll be with you shortly. And then she's fighting off various whites. And then she sees 
that collection of dead children staring at her, right? Tough. Those are the stakes. It's not just like, okay, you get killed by the Night's King, blah, blah, blah. You get killed by the Night's King and then you get raised again and then potentially forced to kill the people you love in the afterlife. That's a nightmare. In Marine, different sort of stakes are playing out. I love this exchange between Danny so and Tyrion good. when Danny says, so after Tyrion has just explained how his CV is, uh, well, let's see, I killed my mother coming into the world. And then while my dad was taking a dump, I put two arrows in his, in his body. And Danny says, so I should welcome you into my service because you murdered members of your own family. And then Tyrion says, into your service. <laughs> your grace, we have only just met. It's too soon to know if you deserve my service. And Danny's like, yeah, you can go back and fight people in the fighting pits. How's that sound? Tyrion is trying to explain to Danny, and really he's he's the person most well suited to do this, is here's what you face when you come home. These are, yes, you want to be the queen of, of Westeros. Here's what it's going to take. And yes, you had Sir Barristan in your service able to tell you about the realm. And yes, you have Jorah or had Jorah, but I was just there and not just there, but I was at the highest circles of power. And I can tell you what it's going to take. And he's only there because the stakes are so high in the first place. And he tells her about Varys's pitch. And he says, the most well-informed person I know, Varys, told me that this girl without wealth, lands or armies had acquired all three plus three dragons. He told me she was our last best chance to build a better world. So, thought you were worth meeting at the very least. <laughs> Last best chance to build a better world. That's pretty stark. And by the way, this is from a guy who is a realist and doesn't really understand the White Walker threat yet. He's seen uh, the letter from Castle Black warning of the, of the threat beyond the wall, but he doesn't really understand it. That's not something you can really understand before you see it, but he's still couching this information about Danny, about how it was told to him in the most dire terms. Now she hasn't, it takes a while for her to come around on him, but he's already trying to tell her, listen, this is what it's going to take. If you want to be the ruler of Westeros, uh, he's like, you know, what, you know, what's so great about you? And she's like, well, you know, I got a pretty big army and I've got those fire breathing dragons. She's like, killing and politics aren't always the same thing. Now, numerous people have tried to tell Danny this in, in the past, but Tyrion brings with him some fresh experience from the land that she wants to conquer. When I served as Hand of the King, I did quite well with the latter, considering the king in question preferred torturing animals to leading his people. I could do an even better job advising a ruler worth the name, if that indeed is what you are. Now, see, there's the rub. And here comes the test. Okay, what do I do with this guy, Jorah, who I like a lot, but I've also got a betrayed few thoughts. me. <laughs> and here instantly... Tyrion is being asked to weigh in on something in which a human life is immediately at stake. And not just like any human life, leaving aside how they first met, Tyrion and Jorah shared some time together. They recited a poem they together, They recited man. a poem together. They talked about magical dwarf cocks together. <laughs> they, you know, he's, Jorah watched Tyrion beat a guy up. And Tyrion, so observant, he says, he worships you. He's in love with you, I think. Oh. You think. <laughs> but he did not trust you with the truth. An unpleasant truth, to be sure, but one of great significance to you. He did not trust that you'd be wise enough to forgive him. That's, that's it right there. So I should kill him, Danny says. 
A ruler who kills those devoted to her is not a ruler who inspires devotion. Ah. Danny needs to hear that. Yeah. Where were you when Mazador was on the block? (laughs) And you're going to need to inspire devotion and a lot of it if you're ever going to rule across the narrow sea, but you cannot have him by your side when you do. Danny, remove Sir Jorah from the city and Jorah that walk a shame. Again. Looks down at his arm. His grayscale is already (laughs) spreading. Well, now that I'm out, I might as well check on this thing. And then later they have that great moment where they're kind of schwilling wine, schwilling that red wine, talking about daddy issues. So here we sit, two terrible children of two terrible fathers. And Danny says, I'm terrible? (laughs) Tyrion's like, listen, you should understand how the stories about you play overseas. You know, like the propaganda about you is not great. Right. And so he's... He says, you know, why am I here? I want to see if you're the right kind of terrible. And she says, what kind is that? The kind that prevents your people from being even more so. And she says she opened the pits, allowing murder to become entertainment. And he's, he actually says, you know what? I respect that. And marrying someone you loathe for the greater good is an impressive display of rulership as well. He wants her to understand, though, that the world is much larger than Westeros. You're going to advise me. Well, you can still speak in complete sentences, she says, as he fucking guzzles <laughs> wine down like Cersei. <laughs> Advise you on what? How do I get what I want? The Iron Throne. Perhaps you should try wanting something else, Tyrion says. Great line. Now, this seems like a jape, but really, it's kind of an important perspective. You need to really think about this thing that you want from all angles if you're truly going to get it. And that's the mistake that so many have made uh, in trying to acquire this thing. And he says, I'm not entirely joking. There's more to the world than Westeros, after all. How many hundreds of thousands of lives have you changed for the better over here? Perhaps this is where you belong, where you can do the most good. And then the final exchange, she just says, you know, this is not my home. And so then the stakes, we can lay out the stakes. Who supports you at home? Now, she says, the common people. This is what Viserys, Right. She's Barristan. been hearing this her whole life. She's been hearing this a long time. Oh, they're, 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 so, in, they're so in dragon they're banners. They're so in dragon banners. And he says, all right, you know, let's, let's pretend that's the case. <laughs> Here in Slaver's Bay, you had the support of the common people and only the common people. What was that like, ruling without the rich? House Targaryen's gone. Not a single person who shares your blood is alive to support you. That's wrong. <laughs> the Starks have gone as well. Our two terrible fathers saw to that. The remaining members of House Lannister will never back you, not ever. Stannis Baratheon won't back you either. His entire claim to the throne rests on the illegitimacy of yours. That leaves the Tyrells. Not impossible. Not enough. Now, Danny here, kind of cryptic remark that shows her uh, dedication to her own cause and her absolute resoluteness, but also shows that maybe a touch of the Mad King here Uh says, you know, Lannister, the famous line, Lannister, Targaryen, Baratheon, Stark, Tyrell. They're all just spokes on the wheel. This one's on top, then that one's on top, and one on and on, and crushing those on the ground. And Tyrion's like, oh, you want to stop the wheel? A lot of people think that. No, I'm not going to stop the wheel. I'm going to break the wheel. And that's a great line, and it sounds great. It's eloquent. But those are the stakes as Danny sees them. And Tyrion's trying to lay out, well, what does that mean? How do you bring that into reality? Speaking into reality, as LeVar Ball might say. <laughs> Sansa. Yeah. The stakes are not world domination like they are for Danny, but that doesn't mean that the stakes aren't very real because ultimately what matters more than family. And in this episode, Sansa learns that some members of her family are alive. This is a game changer for her. She is talking to Theon, to Reek. 
And she says, tell me why Brandon Rickon should be dead while you still breathe the air. Tell me to my face, Dan. Tell me that they weren't your brothers. Dan says, ultimately, you know, he's, he's stumbling and oh, a, a, a little slip and then uh, push. He crumbles. They weren't Brandon Rickon. I couldn't find them. It was two farm boys. I killed them and burned them so no one would know. The look yeah. on Sansa's face. I mean, this what? is, it's a kind of hope that she hasn't right. dared to have exactly. in a very, exactly the case. very long time. And she asks for information. Right. Do you know where they went? Do you know where they went? Anything you can tell right. me. Direction, anything. Point. Just point. All you have to do is point. It doesn't matter, though, that in this moment he is not able to give her anything. Right. All that matters is that she understands something about the world and what might be possible that she didn't understand moments prior. And she was in pure survival mode, pure moment to moment self-preservation. And now she has reason to hope that the Stark line might be rekindled, that she is not completely and utterly alone in the world. And of course, the dark side of this is As soon as you get to experience the joy of knowing they're alive, there's the crashing horror of trying to figure out what situation they're in. Because, you know, more likely than not, they're in extreme danger. What are the stakes for them? And there is another Stark sibling out there as well, though Sansa doesn't know this at the moment, but Arya. Arya. Arya gets her first assignment from quote-unquote Jockin. She is to reconnoiter a old man on the ragman dock who is essentially a seller of life insurance. Meta commentary there. And when an opportune moment arises, she's to take him out with a vial of poison. However, she chooses to do that in the book. She puts it on the coin in which she notices that he's constantly biting. This is, what are the stakes here? Arya has been killing people, yes. So on first blush, maybe the stakes haven't been raised, but... This is the first time Arya is faced with the prospect of murdering someone who hasn't done anything to her or not, her family. He's not on her list. Right. He's not on her list. He hasn't pulled out a dagger and tried to kill her in, a, in an inn. This isn't anyone that hurt Sansa, hurt Rob. This is just a guy that she has nothing to do with. And if she wants to join the Faceless Men, that's her future. Uh, this isn't defensible in any kind of way. It's cold-blooded murder committed upon command. And... These are the stakes, and she proves herself, spoiler, not ready for them later in the season when she calls an audible after catching sight of Marin Trant, that fucker, uh, setting foot on the docks. Cersei, meanwhile, deprived of the sea air that Arya is enjoying. Deprived of any kind of air. No oysters, clams, or cockles for Cersei, just misery. Her feces in a bowl next to her. (laughs) Confinement depression, despair, rage. And every conversation that Cersei has had with the High Sparrow has followed a bit of a pattern, a bit of a script. He focuses on sin, on hypocrisy, on the will of the gods. And everything that he's saying is, sure, it can be about Marjorie or Loras or or the the realm at large, but it's also about her and her sins, her hypocrisy. The first time, the very first time that they meet, He tells her when he's talking about his name, oh, I tell them no one's special. And they think I'm special for telling them so. He is stating in no uncertain terms, nobody's special. You won't find any favor here. But she never listened. Not even when he then went on to state in even more stark, clear terms. Hypocrisy is a boil. Lancing a boil is never pleasant. We've returned to this line and this idea a few times because it's such a clear 
mission statement on his part, and yet Cersei still wound up in this situation. A few episodes back when Cersei called the High Sparrow to her chambers to discuss the state of the realm, what they could do for each other. She says, you and I both know how the world works. Too often the wicked are the wealthiest beyond the reach of justice. The king himself cannot always punish those who deserve it most, especially when he's busy testing out a new chew toy with Sir Pounce. She, of course, does not have the awareness, the full view of the board to understand that she's talking about herself here as much as anyone. She thinks that she's making a deal with the player. The High Sparrow's response. Remember what he says. All sinners are equal before the gods. All sinners. That means you, Cersei. And now, faced with the loss of her freedom and status. I am the queen. I am the queen. I am the queen. And in the hands of religious fanatics who she empowered, who she armed, she is finally, finally at long last, beginning to understand the stakes. Kyburn. Kyburn. Not even to me. Great. He is doing his part. He is trying very, very hard to get her to understand. He comes to visit her and goes over the charges. And, as you know, she hand waves them. Right, all right. lies. It's like, well, that's not really yeah. good enough. That's not really a sufficient defense for what you're facing. And he says, of course, Your Grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. We know you didn't do. You've definitely never fucked your brother. Right. You didn't do never. any of that. And he says, my concern is that the faith does not adhere to the same standards of proof as the crown. And I hope you'll excuse me for saying it, but belief is so often the death of reason. Incredible moment here. Cersei <laughs> responds by saying, I wish you'd said it sooner. Cersei, come on. But a bum. There are a couple more alarming developments in this exchange with Kyburn. Kyburn. Kyburn says, has Kyburn. summoned... <laughs> Summoned Kevin with an A. An A. To serve his hand to preside over the small council. But Kevin won't come to visit. Well, what about my son, the king? Cersei wonders. Ah, Tommen is struggling with his mother and his wife in jail. He's in his room. He's not eating. He wouldn't see me. He won't see anyone, Kyburn says. Well, Kyburn. that's a shame. But Cersei, again, starting to, to gain a clearer picture of what she's facing here. I can't stay here. Get me out of here. She's arrived at this moment. Get me out of here. What do we have to do? Let's talk turkey. Well, there is a way, Your Grace. Oh. A way out. Confess to the High Sparrow? I won't. I made him. I rose him up from nothing. I will not kneel before some barefooted commoner and beg his forgiveness. And then at this moment, Septa Unella enters and Cersei kind of just like skitters into the corner like a, like a, piece of like a vermin yeah. when the light turns on yeah. Kyburn exits goodbye my queen ah the work continues a little easter egg for her a little ray of hope something to hold on to there the mountain still working on that this is an interesting moment because for a second we think Cersei is beginning to advance in her understanding of the stakes mm-hmm. and what is really about to befall her what she has to do to get out of the situation. But as soon as the specifics are presented to her, she shirks away. Again, she still does not want to do what is necessary. Things are extremely dark for her. Yeah. But she's still fronting. She's still flexing. She still thinks the most important thing that she can do is get in a jab. That is in part because unlike John... Cersei doesn't actually have a fucking clue at this moment. 
of what the realm is really facing, of what the stakes actually are. This is the huge advantage that John, the Night's Watch, Northerners, the Wildlings have over the rest of the realm. Cersei was in the small council meeting when the letter arrived. Right. She hand-waved it faster yeah. than anyone. She doesn't want to hear this. But John cannot, will not, never wanted to ignore the truth. And there are old stories about ice spiders big as hounds. Big as hounds. With the things that we've seen, it's getting harder and harder not to believe them. And that is part of what made this episode such a stunner when it aired. It showed us things that we had never seen that even book readers had never experienced in full. But there are still nuggets in the books, bits of connective tissue that Mm. may or may not actually connect. That's part of the intrigue around the discussion. So that in mind, let's assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel. Teach us everything we need to know about the Night's King and the Battle of Hardhome from the books. Night's King and Hardhome from the books. Okay, the Night's King of the books is categorically not the one seen at the end of Hardhome um, doing the international come at me bro sign and raising the newly fallen wildlings as whites. I will now read to you the words of the God himself, George R. R. Martin, who said the following on his blog. As for the Night's King, as for the Night's King, the form I prefer in the books, he is a legendary figure akin to Land the Clever and Brandon the Builder and no more likely to have survived to the present day than they have. Okay, but that's not really a fun answer, you guys. And it doesn't mean that the show version isn't in some way related to or influenced by the legendary Night's King of the books. So here it is, Night's King. Back during the Age of Heroes, so some 6,000 years ago, when the Long Night was perhaps still within living memory, there reigned at the Night Fort the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And yes, you've heard this before, but I'm going to go into more detail. One day from the top of the wall, he spied a beautiful pale woman with eyes as blue as sapphires, and he was drawn to her. He fell in love with her. He brought her back to the castle and he made necrophilic love to her. Oh my. It was good. <laughs> they cast a spell over his brothers and founded a dark kingdom all their own with the Knights Fort as their home base. And for 13 years, the 13th Lord Commander and his dead bride reigned. Until an alliance between King Brandon Stark, another one, and Joraman, the king beyond the wall, finally brought their evil rule to an end. So... There are some tantalizing threads to follow in the book version of this tale, depending how closely you think the show hews to the book version of the Night's King history, that is. It's fair to presume that the pale woman with the fearsome glowing blue eyes is a White Walker, of course. Now, interesting questions. We have yet to see a female White Walker. A Lady Walker? Yeah, could they exist? So... Who, if anyone, does the Night's King answer to? Is it possible that there is a Night's Queen somewhere beyond the lands of winter calling the shots somewhere deep out there? Now, another question. The identity of the 13th Lord Commander is unknown, but there is some compelling circumstantial evidence that he was a Stark. When it was discovered that the Night's King and his bride had been making human sacrifices mm, to the White Walkers, all the records pertaining to him in the Night's Watch archives were purged. So... If the 13th Lord Commander was a Bolton, a longtime Stark nemesis, as we know, the family of the Boltons, or any other house, doxing them would probably be good propaganda for Winterfell. Look at how bad these guys are. Look how bad the fucking Boltons are. They were the Night's King and they sacrificed dudes. Who would have the power to expunge the Night's Watch records? And who would want to? The King in the North, right? 
Mm-hmm. Why would he do this to cover up that he was king to the Night's King? So does this mean that John is related to the Night's King? And could that be why the Night's King was watching him so closely during the Battle of Hardhome? Like, ooh, this guy's interesting. Now, the Battle of Hardhome in the books occurs basically off screen. What happens is a detachment from Eastwatch led by Cotter Pike go up there and Cotter sends a message back to Castle Black and it reads, at hard home with six ships, wild seas, Blackbird lost with all hands, two Lyseni ships driven aground on Skane, Talon taking water, very bad here, Wildlies eating their own dead, dead things in the woods, Bravosi captains will only take women, children on their ships, which woman call us slavers, attempt to take Stormcrow defeated, six crew dead, many wildlings, eight ravens left, dead things in the water, send help, by land, seas racked by storms, from Talon by hand of Master Harmoon. Now, this paints a dire picture of the things at Hardhome, and clearly what we've seen uh, is, you know, broadly applies to what we saw there, except for the fact that the White Walkers and their white followers did not step into the water. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. Further, we should ask ourselves, would John's wildling resettlement plan work? Would his little Dunkirk evacuation actually work? (laughs) What was his plan? Wait, is Harry there? (laughs) <laughs> what was so John's plan is to march all of the wildlings, those he can save, and resettle them on Night's Watch lands. So would that work? Uh, yeah, I mean, assuming that the Watch and the Realm doesn't violently object, which is not at all something that we should take for granted, the Watch owns all the land that runs south of the Wall, 50 leagues out from coast to coast. These lands are known as the Gift, and that's comprised of the original lands bequeathed to the Watch back upon its founding by King Brandon Stark, and the New Gift, which thousands of years later was granted to the Watch by King Jaehaerys due to the request of his queen, good queen Alisane, a legendary friend to the Watch, by the way. This reapportioning of their traditional lands was uh, met with not a little bit of resentment. Maybe we'll get into that later. So, uh, yeah, these lands should be more than enough to support the wildlings who are used to surviving and even thriving in the lands north of the Wall where there's very little game you cannot farm. Um, yeah, so John's plan probably would work. Hey guys, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to Binge Mode. Maester. Yeah. I'm not sure if you've decided whether or not you're going to have me killed, but... Think about it. While you're mulling... Let's head to the Sept to bathe in the light of the Seven or to bathe in the light of our dead bride (laughs) by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode, other than all the amazing shit we've already discussed, obviously. Lightning round style, you go first. Number one, Tyrion on Jorah Mormont of Bear Island. I can't remember ever seeing a sane man as devoted to anything as he is to serving you. He claims he would kill for you. He has, by the way, P.S. And die for you. And nothing I have witnessed gives me reason to doubt him. Man, is Jorah actually insane? Insane with love, I think. Just driven mad by passion. passion. Kind of a wild House Mormont episode, actually. Yeah. Like Jorah, just such a low, getting exiled from the second time, the grayscale spreading over him while he, the sword that should be his right. was just revealed to be a walker killer. That's great. Oh, Jorah. Uh, number two. This is a 
tough one. Very, 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 very. Extremely tough one. There is a conversation back at Castle Black between Sam and Ollie that, spoiler warning, has some pretty dire consequences. Ollie comes to chat about John and the decision that he's made to go fetch the wildlings. And Sam is trying to explain John's thinking, to justify John's decision, to to highlight for Ollie John's rationale. But Sam inadvertently kind of sort of gives Ollie permission to kill John. He says, sometimes... A man has to make hard choices, choices that may look wrong to others, but you know are right in the long run. And again, he is talking about John going to get the wildlings, but word for word, Ollie takes that as justification for right. thrusting the his blade. The wildlings my family. As I've told you many a time. The other amazing thing in this exchange is that when after Ollie responds to this little pep talk and says, you believe that? And Sam says, with all my heart, try not to worry, Ollie. I've been worrying about John for years. He always comes back. (laughs) Amazing. No accident that in a conversation where Sam, again, basically accidentally says, yeah, sure, go ahead and kill him. (laughs) He's also saying to us, don't worry. After they kill him, we'll just pop right back up off that table. Big one. Big one. Number three. (laughs) Number three. Arya talking with Jockin about the thin man and what she sees and Jockin gives her the vial of poison after she kind of explains, you know, what's been going on there. He, the, the guy basically pays, he takes on uh, insurance policies for sailors and if they die, he pays out to their families. Now, how is it that the faceless men have been keyed onto this guy. Did somebody hire them? What is the deal? I read this as a, a couple of different ways. First of all, life pays for life, right? So it is perhaps feasible that a previous sailor made a deal with the faceless men saying, if I should die and he doesn't pay my family, think about going for this guy. And then secondarily, this is a man who uh, his business is essentially gambling on life and death, right? So that would put him within the purview of the god of death, the many-faced god and the faceless men. That is my read on that. Love it. Great stuff. Number four. Yeah. My read is that this following exchange is gut-wrenching. Yeah. Theon is trying poorly to explain why he ratted out Sansa to Ramsay. I was trying to help you. You wanted to escape. There is no escape. Not ever. Theon Greyjoy tried to escape. The master knew. He knows everything. He hunted him and caught him and strapped him to a cross and cut away piece after piece until there was no Theon left. It's this weird, you know, third person speech pattern that's obviously meant to indicate how damaged he is, how separate he is from that old life. Sansa says, good. If it weren't for you, I'd still have a family. If I could do to you what Ramsay did to you right here, right now, I would. This is an interesting moment because we are obviously firmly on Sansa's side. But we also see in the course of this exchange the slight viciousness yeah. bubbling up inside of her. Troubling. Understandable yeah, after everything that's happened. but natural. Spoiler alert. It's the same thing that's allowing her to say that to someone as damaged as Theon. That's what's going to allow her to let dogs literally right. eat Ramsay. Right. As she smiles. <laughs> At the end of season six. Spoiler. Number five. Daenerys says, I know what my father was, what he did. I know the Mad King earned his name. This mm. is an important uh, insight from Danny, and really the first time that she's ever stated or acknowledged even that 
you know what? My dad was bad. Not a good dude. Cooked people. <laughs> it's nice that Tyrion and Danny can instantly bond over right. how much their father sucked. Right. Number six. We often get questions about Varys' intentions, and so we wanted to just make sure to highlight this particular exchange when Tyrion and Danny are talking. God, their conversations are so loaded. Yeah, We've mentioned loaded, basically loaded. every single thing they've said to each other. For, for an episode that is really about Jon and the Night's King, those, those Tyrion-Danny scenes are really something. He explains that <laughs> Varys believes in Danny. Varys is the one who set Tyrion on this course to find her. And Danny says, for 20 years, the spider oversaw the campaign to find and kill me. What is Tyrion's? explanation for basically a, a, yeah. a maester question that Jason would get from you guys. Hello. He did what he had to do to survive. He did a lot of things he didn't have to do. Right. I suspect he's the main reason you weren't slaughtered in your crib. Just a good reminder right. that the people in this world sometimes do have the same questions that we do as readers or viewers. And it's important in a moment where that question is given voice that someone like Tyrion is able to answer it in a way that makes sense to us. Well, both things can be true. He could have been working to restore the Targaryen regime, and he also could have been working to keep himself alive. Yeah. Number seven, I give Lana's seafood cart an F rating according to the health department, it doesn't, it just, everything about it seems fucking horrifying. Uh, oh, it's just clams and cockles. And then this thin man is like, oh, it's just fresh. <laughs> Best in the city. You were lied to an old man, would you? And then, you know, she cuts him uh, with this, cuts him the oysters open with the same knife that she's wiping like on her fucking chest. Uh, it's bad, guys. Don't eat. And then she's like, spoiler. Later, she goes into a, a brothel. And yeah, people are like, yeah, tough. you know what I want? I'm in a brothel. You know what? I want seafood that's been rotting on a cart. What's the temperature control it's like? Non, it's, it's like non-existent. This is really, really yeah. tough. Guys. Yeah. We're not friends. Come on. We've never been friends. Oh, this is tough now. We won't become friends today. Come on. This isn't about friendship. Wow. I'm out. This is about survival. All right. Just kidding. You're my best friend in the yeah! world. I love you so much. What would I do without you? I'd literally die. Just ask this episode's winner. Each episode, we are going to honor the person who played the game, advanced his or her cause in some tangible way. This week, the winner of our champion's purse is... John Snow. Johnny hear, Snow. Hear us out. Hear us out. I mean, there's nothing to hear out. Listen, on the surface, John's... I mean, what would you call it? Like a Dunkirk-like escape from hard home with barely the amount of people that he envisioned saving with the fucking Night's King and the Whites like hard on his heels. Yes, untold thousands of free folk perished in the White Walker attack. Lost all that dragon glass. Very, very tough. There's more. There's plenty under dragons, so don't worry about that shit. But the Lord Commander did accomplish some very important things. One, he survived. Come on. Listen. It's big. That is huge. It's big. He can now tell the realm firsthand what's coming. He's seen the enemy up close. He's dueled with them. Crucially, he knows that Valyrian Steel can take them down. He's that fought them. That is massive. Massive. I mean, massive. It, it's a huge piece of information which he can now convey to people. The moment when the sword, when he raises Longclaw to yeah. meet the walker's blade. Just reflexively. We've seen, he's seen, we've seen right. the walker weapons shatter. He's fully expecting to shatter die Shatter metal. And what happens? Well, Longclaw holds. Yeah. 
And the look on John's face. And the White Walker's face. Is only matched by the look of yeah. shock on the Walker's face. We also get a moment where the camera pans back after John then moves the sword, swings, yeah. blasts the Walker to smithereens, little icicles. The Night's King is watching from above. He sees this oh. too. Not John is not the only mm. one who's learning what Valerian steel swords can right. do, what this weapon can do. This is huge. And he did save lives. Now, yeah. he set out to save... Many more. Everyone. Many, many more. S- small spoiler alert, but right. we will see in the next episode that the, the weight of the lives he right. didn't save is, way, is weighing incredibly heavily on him. But we're going to say now the same thing that Sam will say to him right. in those moments. That guy there, that woman there, right. the, all these people, they're literally only alive because of you. And it is true that every life is precious. Like not just as a platitude, but literally in terms of, again, the theme of this episode, the stakes. Every single person who's alive, it's not only one person to help in the fight, it's one person who isn't dead in that other army. It's one fewer white for the Night King to command. And also, John didn't just bring bodies back. He earned trust. Right. He won over Torment. He won over other members of the wildlings who saw, who saw how he was willing to fight and put the Night's Watch on the line for their survival. Now, of course, every cloud has a silver lining and every silver lining is inside a dark cloud. And, (laughs) you know, again, little spoiler alert here. The fact that John put those Night's Watch lives on the line is going to be a problem for him when he gets back home. Slight problem. But in this moment, this is a victory. He escaped death. He gained invaluable knowledge. He knows more than literally anyone else in the That's world right. other than the people who were with him yeah. about the threat that they're facing and what they can do to fight it. And he looked good. <laughs> he looked good doing it. I'll just say it. All right, guys. Belief is so often the death of reason, but we are glad that you still believe in us. Thank you. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us next time when we will be discussing season five, Episode 9, the gut-wrenching, Oof. devastatingly sad, but also kind of awesome, the Dance of Dragons. Till then, remember, we're not going to stop the wheel. We're going to fucking break it. Diamond. Kyron, 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 Kyron makes it the greatest. Kyron, 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 Kyron is not even going to make you greatest. The citadel is expelled from the citadel for abominable experiments in his laboratory. Have I mentioned his major license? Been revoked.